a surprise map by itself, maybe we need to use them for a technical audience, but I, I think they can offer a lot of guidance uh, to people. Um, and in fact, sort of one thing that I've been looking at recently is how do we make data values ignorable? Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Hey Moritz. Hey Enrico. All good? Yep. Summer broke out over here, so things are really fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's awesome. So today we have another very interesting project episode. We're going to talk about a very interesting technique that is called Surprise Maps. And we have on the show Michael Correo and Jeff Hare. Hey guys, welcome on the show. Hi. Hi. Good to be back. <laughs> Jeff, you, you've been here a, a few times. Third time's the charm. <laughs> yeah. Can you guys briefly introduce yourself and then we can dive right in into, into the describing what this project is about. Michael, you want to start? Sure. Um, so I'm a postdoc here at the University of Washington in the Interactive Data Lab. Uh, and sort of my research focus is looking at presenting statistical techniques to non-statistical audiences. And in particular, I've gotten interested in looking at sort of bias and uncertainty and how we can present uncertain information to the general public. Jeff? Hi, I'm Jeff Hare. I'm an associate professor of computer science and engineering here at the University of Washington, where I direct the Interactive Data Lab. And I'm also a co-founder of Trifacta. And generally, I'm interested in visualization from low-level software infrastructures all the way up to visual perception and cognition. So we wanted to talk about this interesting technique that, as I said, is called surprise maps. And I have to say, the first time I saw it, I was like, finally, something that solves a very a, a recurring problem that I see all the time. So uh, the, the basic idea, I think, behind surprise maps is to, um, rather than visualizing the value of something on a map directly, is to create a model and um, visualize how surprising the value in a given area is. And I have to say, I was really excited to see this technique um, um, happening because I see this kind of problem all the time with maps like Choropleth maps, especially when I teach in class. My students uh, build Choropleth maps that are highly, highly correlated to population. And rather than visualizing the, the value or the signal that they're interested in, what they are actually showing is only um, population density, right? So Mike, can you briefly um, describe the technique and um, um, maybe, maybe using more details than mine, what is surprise maps and uh, how it works? Sure, right. Uh, so uh, you mentioned this. One of the problems with chloropleth maps and things like that is you only have one variable that you can show on the map at a time. And often just the value of that variable is not very informative. Yeah, it can be highly correlated with other variables. Um, there can be unequal amounts of variation. And so the whole idea with surprise maps is you build up models of what you expect to see in the data. And then rather than visualizing the values, what you do is visualize this metric called Bayesian surprise, 
which is an information theoretic metric that looks at how much a particular value at a location changes your beliefs about the model. So if initially sort of everything you believe equally, um, you get data in and all of a sudden one model is very prominent, you're looking at the things that caused you to shift your beliefs towards that new model. Uh, and so it's almost a saliency technique for where you should look in the map to find informative values. I guess that's the nickel tour. Do you have any classic example of, say, um, um, Coropleth map that 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 has this kind of problem and it's solved by a surprise map? Uh, yeah. So the the example that we use in the paper, which I really like, is um, there's this uh, type of crime called mischief, which is uh, it's essentially a, any property crime where the intent is not theft. So you know, vandalism counts as mischief. Um, and if you visualize just the count of mischief uh, per province in Canada, um, it's just correlated with population. So the high population yeah. territories like uh, or provinces like Ontario pop out. Um, but then if you normalize to a per capita rate, uh, you actually get the almost the opposite map. So these low population uh, provinces are really sticking out with their high per capita rates. And neither of those maps really reflect what's going on because some of those territories have such a small population that you expect a large amount of variance, right? You have a, mm -hmm. a, a low mm -hmm. sample size. And so surprise maps actually generate a map that's sort of in between both of those extremes. And it shows that, for instance, you actually have very high per capita rates in these uh, prairie territories like Alberta and Manitoba, but they also have enough people in it that you really should maybe care about those high rates. It's hard to explain without pictures, but yeah, we, we can put the maps in the in the blog post, and and uh, our listeners will be able to see that. And I, I like this example too because um, it shows that both the just showing the rare like the amount of things is often not that interesting. Your paper also starts with the great sentence: "There's only limited utility in seeing the expected," which is like really a, a good observation, I think. And so. Um, Showing this surprise factor is, is super interesting, I think. There's a really fundamental question I have here. So Bayesian reasoning, Bayesian analysis, how does this actually work? Like I hear things like belief and prior and posterior and model. Can you give me like a, a really simple explanation of, of how all this plays together and how you end up with a surprise uh, factor? I, I can give it a shot. Yeah, I can try to see. Um, <laughs> a PhD in, in statistics a, in five minutes, please. It's a good please. challenge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, and so, so in general, uh, the, the the backing uh, of this is, is Bayes' law, which is you know the probability of A given B is proportional to the probability of B given A times the probability of A. Um, right. But that all, all that means is that you have some initial belief, and in Bayesian space, that's somewhat analogous to a probability. And you have an initial belief, you collect evidence from your data, and that gives you an updated belief, right? So now it's it's strong or weak evidence for or against your belief. Mm -hmm. um, and that modulates your probability, and that creates a new belief that is tempered by the evidence that is now your posterior. Yeah. So you have your prior, which is your initial belief, and then you have your posterior, which is your new belief after you've received the information. Um, and how surprise works is that you have a bunch of models for which you have a, a, a set of beliefs that hopefully sum up to one if we're dealing in probability space. And you collect data and you update your beliefs and create posteriors for each of those beliefs. And then what surprise is, is just a metric of the distance from your initial belief space to your new belief space. 
Um, I guess that's that's the one minute thirty second version. <laughs> awesome. So it's basically how much the data tells you that you didn't know before, in a way. Yeah, it's it's sort of how the data helps you disambiguate what you think is going on. Uh huh. Uh huh. Nice. Yeah, makes sense. You know, my favorite uh, part of the technique, as Michael formulated it, is dealing not just with expectation in the form of, you know, is this uniformly distributed? Is there's a Gaussian distribution? But also incorporating models that deal directly with variance and uncertainty. So, for example, given a smaller sample size, you'll expect higher variance. And so actually having a term to correct for that, I think, was one of the nicest and more powerful things uh, that corrects, you know, some of the standard problems we have with traditional choropleth maps. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about the background of the project? Like, how did it all start? Uh, how did you come up with the idea? And how did you develop it ultimately? Were there like multiple versions of it? Did you get it right uh, on the first attempt? Or did you t have to tweak a lot or read a lot on statistics? How did it go? So the thing that sort of got me thinking about it uh, was I was actually looking at it from sort of a, a spatio-temporal sort of time series analysis kind of thing. Um, The data set that we were looking at first uh, is something called the COAST project, um, where they're looking at uh, sort of mortality rates for seabirds, essentially beachcombers that are combing the beach, and whenever they find a dead bird, they, they, they note it down. And so in that data set, what counts as an interesting feature is sort of not defined, mm -hmm. because you have different numbers of observers, right? There's more people combing the beaches around Seattle than are combing it in the Aleutian Islands, for instance. Um, but there's also different base rates and things. And we were looking at what's a metric that lets us account for all the base rates of all of these different models, um, but still gives us something informative that we can show people. And we sort of realized after we'd tried applying it to spatio-temporal data that it works just as well for, for static chloropleth maps. And it really addressed the problem, I think, that, that people have noticed all the time in these, these single-step ones. So it was initially a spatio-temporal technique, and we decided to just apply it wherever it was useful. Mm -hmm. Is it limited to maps? So the, the paper is called Surprise Maps, but I could imagine it could also be used for any type of categorization of data or if you have a measure applied to different groups of 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 a population it could apply as well probably yeah the, i mean so the metric can be used essentially for anything uh it actually we grabbed the metric from uh computer vision uh so idi and baldi are the uh the folks that we grabbed that metric from mm -hmm. and it can it can apply to discrete model cases too um so, for instance, if you want to see what's the most interesting value in your table, for instance, that's making you disambiguate between models, and mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. can make a surprise map for that as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have a practical question because I often run into similar issues. So, for instance, now I'm working with uh, word frequencies, like if you can think of a t word cloud or something like this, like you want to summarize a text or um, mentions of specific words and... So if you just visualize, so the amount is the size, that's like the natural thing you would want to do, but then it's always the same. It's sort of, as you write, it's the expected mm -hmm. and, and you have to really dig for the unexpected, interesting stuff. But so when you visualize more an indirect measure, like a trend or a relative development or something as related to a baseline, um, My concern is always, do people understand that it's not now the actual amount that I'm showing, but something indirect? Is What's your observation there? Like, do normal populations understand if something is darker or bigger that it's, in this case, not more, but more than expected? So it's sort of this indirect <laughs> way of thinking or this 
more abstract way of thinking. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I agree. That's a big problem, um, especially you know for some of these metrics. It's hard to say you know what a Shannon bit of information means yeah, to, yeah. to you know, a <laughs> random person. Um, so what I mean, what we did in the paper as sort of a way of punting on that problem is always present the data next to the surprise map. And so, or use it, you know, as a saliency waiting, as opposed to just showing it by itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps people get it, get a handle on it. Um, and I think that's in general true for things like residual plots as well. Um, if to really get people to understand them, you also want to show the model that you're generating the residuals from. Uh, at least that's my suspicion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's an interesting challenge in interpretation. And so a couple things uh, to think about. So one is you can imagine using Bayesian surprise, not just as a, something that you directly visualize on the map, but even if you wanted to craft a more narrative tour, you could say, look here first and then provide some context relative to the actual underlying data and use that again as a saliency technique. It's really saying something about, you know, here's the things you might want to attend to first before you look at other parts of the data uh, to help, you know, kind of calibrate your understanding. Um, and then the second point, uh, which, which Michael was alluding to, is that underlying Bayesian surprise is that you have to specify a set of models. So to know what's expected, you have to sort of set up some, some sort of, you know, baseline models in terms of what you will measure that expectation. And so for more savvy, um, you know, consumers of data visualizations, I think understanding something about those underlying models and how the beliefs are shifting among them is actually very informative, but I don't necessarily know how to convey that without having some basic uh, statistical literacy as well. So then you, you expect surprise maps to be, to be used more in technical, say, or scientific context, or you, you imagine them to be, yeah, to be usable also for, say, more, um, yeah, for the general public. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'd like to hear, you know, Michael's take on it too, but my feeling is it's twofold. So at one level, you can just use it as a way to direct attention. So even if people don't necessarily understand all the mechanisms behind it, if the, the surprise model was well-crafted, you can still say, look at this province before that province, you know, it's greater or less than expected, and then people can investigate for themselves. Um, but for another class of audience that is more technical, you can imagine revealing more details about how that underlying model was constructed and how the beliefs are changing over, you know, different observations of data. And that can provide additional insight for directing an analysis. Um, but again, probably not for a more general audience. Yeah, I mean, so so uh, uh, just to add on to what Jeff said, right, I, I, I think... Um yeah, surprise maps by itself, maybe you need to use them for a technical audience, but I, I think they can offer a lot of guidance uh, to people. Um, and in fact, sort of one thing that I've been looking at recently is how do we make uh, data values ignorable, right? Like, how do we draw people's attention away from non-statistic, you know, non-statistically significant or outlier points or things we expect to be noise? Mm -hmm. And so I think Bayesian surprise... Um, just as it can be a saliency metric, it can also be a filtering metric by that measure. And so there, I think the consumers could could be anyone. Um, yep. So treating it as guidance as opposed to the chart that you look at, I think, is a way of presenting it to the general audience. Yeah. Yeah, I think another aspect that I, that I really like here is the general idea that rather than visualizing data directly, you try to build a model first and then visual 
visualize data through the model, right? And I think that's a general idea that has not been explored enough in visualization. We tend to visualize data directly, but that's a clear example where using a model in between is actually going to be very beneficial. And 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 I have a hunch that this kind of idea could be extended to many other many other situations. But can I say can I just say something quickly on that, oh, yeah. that point? Go ahead. Yeah. Jeff. So yeah. I think I think you're right, Enrico, about the information visualization community. But I think in all fairness, both cartographers and statisticians have spent decades thinking hard about seeing data through a model. And so if we're late to the party, (laughs) shame on us. But I think nevertheless, there's a great party to be had. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, things like residual plots, um, even, um, you know, showing deviations from a model uh, on a map are things that, that both communities, stats and cartography have been doing for a long time. Um, but yeah, I think I think InfoViz is a little late to the game here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we definitely need to catch up there. It's a it's a very important direction to explore. Um, so if if one of our listeners wants to actually use uh, the tool and in, and maybe integrate it in the in his or her own uh, workflow, how do you suggest them to to use it? I guess you you also have some code available somewhere, right, on GitHub? Yeah, there's there's a public GitHub repository that has a very simple working demo um, and some examples. I mean, the metric itself is just a, a callback library divergence. So you know, there's a couple logs in there, and you need to calculate some residuals, but it's um it's reasonably straightforward. Um, we didn't toolkit it just because how models are instantiated can vary so much from dataset to dataset that I'm not certain what you know so what the right level of abstraction is for that. Um, but it's it's reasonably easy to just sort of plug and play, um, just using the code that we have. Um, I noticed that some people have already started using them. Um, so for an example, uh, there's this project called Census Mapper, which looks at the Canadian census. Um, and one of the people over there, uh, Jens von uh, Bergman, has started using Bayesian Surprise to visualize mm-hmm, elements mm-hmm, of the Canadian mm-hmm. census. Um, so you know, they, they were just able to, to plug in our metric directly into their maps. So, um, it, it, we, we unfortunately don't have a toolkit that you can use, but there, we have some example code and, and the met, the metric itself is easy to calculate. So, yeah, no, I've, I've, I would love to see it applied to more, to more, um, cases. And I think especially in journalism, I mean, choropleth maps are so, so common. So that's definitely one of the areas where uh, I expect the technique to be to be adopted, right? At least I hope so. So um, what is next? Do you have plan? I guess you have plans to extend this work maybe to other situations or... Uh, uh, so, what are your plans? I mean, so for me, the most the most pressing thing, given my my research directions, is how to actually make these maps consumable for the general audience. Yeah, right. We sort of punted on this problem in in the paper. Um, so, I've been looking at ways of how you can integrate surprise directly uh, into these maps and, and present them in a straightforward way um, and how we can you know nut, nudge people towards ignoring or considering or, or being skeptical of, of data values using surprise do you guys have any plans to study how people perceive these maps or something like that some sort of experimental work on that yeah, we, we've done a little bit of experimental work on how people look at uncertainty in maps, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, with with surprise sort of being the tacit application of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there's we we want to dig a little bit more in that space as well. Jeff, do you have anything to add there on the on future plans? I think in general, you know, looking beyond just surprise maps, 
um, reasoning under uncertainty is this really gnarly problem. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think yeah, visualization yeah. has a role to play, but we'll be fooling ourselves if we think visualization alone is going to do it. So obviously modeling is part of it, but also I think uh, differences in task domain and outcome may be very important into how people make decisions here. So I think it's a grand challenge and a very difficult one. And so I'm just interested in anything where changes in visual representation actually may, actually cause an effect relative to some of these really strong like, heuristics and biases we have towards dealing with uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of papers out there that show, yeah, visualizations maybe kind of, or in some cases just don't change how we you know actually make decisions in the face of, of uncertain data. Um, and so really trying to understand the, the right types of strategies, whether it's in the case of surprise maps or some other works, do we actually suppress information that's likely to be misleading? So we're actually you know, changing the sort of input into people's reasoning process. It's, it's a fascinating issue, and I'm, I'm excited to see um, folks like Mike as well as other young researchers in the field start to really try and tackle these problems. Super important topic. And um, if you're more interested in dealing with how to deal with uncertainty, uh, we have the episode with Alberto Cairo, which you could listen to. Yeah. And also Amanda Cox had an amazing talk at OpenVisConf uh, talking about visualizing uncertainty. And uh, she can tell a lot of stories from last year from how the visualization of the election uh, forecasts played out. And um, this is definitely a good talk to check out. And it's, I agree, it's one of the big topics today in, in, in data and in visualization. So thanks for making progress there and teaching me a bit of Bayesian analysis. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> hope to see you soon. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, here are a few ways you can support the show and get in touch with us. First, we have a page on Patreon where you can contribute an amount of your choosing per episode. As you can imagine, we have some costs for running the show and we would love to make it a community-driven project. You can find the page at patreon.com slash datastories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. Just search us in iTunes store or follow the link in our website. And we also want to give you some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're of course on Twitter at twitter.com slash datastories, but we also have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash podcast, And we also have a newsletter so if you want to get news directly into your inbox, go to our homepage, Data Stories, and look for the link that you find in the footer. And finally, you can also chat directly with us and other listeners using Slack. Again, you can find a button to sign up at the bottom of our page. And we do love to get in touch with our listeners. So if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know amazing people you want us to invite or projects you want us to talk about, let us know. That's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. Data Stories is brought to you by Click. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the old story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories.